York. This is Democracy Now! To ease epic suffering, make the delivery of aid easier and safer, and facilitate the release of hostages, I reiterate my appeal for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres calls again for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. But Israel, with the backing of the United States, has rejected the call and is continuing its bombardment for a 19th day. The Palestinian death toll has now topped 6,500, including 2,700 children. I'm telling you we were at home when suddenly we found what seemed like a barrel bomb. This was no ordinary rocket. We haven't heard of anything like it before. As you can see, everything is gone. Innocent people died, including children and women. This is Israel's goal, to kill the innocent and women and children. We'll go to the occupied West Bank to speak with Amnesty International's researcher on Israel and the occupied territories. We'll also talk to the Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Viet Thanh Nguyen, author of the new memoir, A Man of Two Faces. Last week, a major cultural institution in New York, 92NY, formerly the 92nd Street Y, canceled an event with him after he signed an open letter calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Plus, we look at how U.S. foreign policy toward Latin America is fueling historic numbers of asylum seekers. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The U.N. agency serving Palestinians, UNRWA, warned it would have to stop its life-saving operations in Gaza by tonight unless it receives more fuel. The humanitarian situation in Gaza has reached catastrophic levels, with hospitals shutting down, others cutting back critical services amidst the lack of fuel and supplies. At the Indonesian hospital in northern Gaza, staff have resorted to using smartphone lights to see in the darkness as the hospital was forced to switch off power in all but a few parts of the building. The nonstop Israeli bombardment of Gaza continues. On Tuesday, a father in Khan Yunus carried the body of his young daughter in his arms after she was killed in an Israeli airstrike on their home. I don't want to let her go. This is my daughter. I want as much time with her as I have before we bury her. They wanted to cover her face, but I told them no. We do not cover the faces of martyrs. The martyr's face is never covered. The martyr's face is never covered. The Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza says over 6,500 people have been killed since October 7th. The 1.4 million internally displaced Gazans, representing over half the total population of Gaza, are facing increasing rates of disease due to overcrowding, poor sanitation and lack of essentials like food and clean water. At night, it's cold, and there aren't enough blankets for everyone. There is sand right beneath us. The children are all sick, some coughing, some have runny noses, some have fevers at night. Where are the rights of our children? Where are our human rights? Israel appears poised to further escalate its attack on civilians as its army chief says it's ready for ground operation. The U.S. has sent top military commanders to advise Israel on its assault, including Marine Corps Lieutenant General James Glynn, who led U.S. forces in its failed operations in Iraq, in Fallujah in particular. 
A war monitor said Israeli strikes hit Syria's Aleppo airport today in the fourth such attack over the past two weeks as fears mount of a wider regional conflict. Meanwhile, Israel's lashing out at the U.N. after Secretary General Antonio Guterres said it was guilty of clear violations of international humanitarian law and that the October 7th Hamas attack in Israel, quote, did not happen in a vacuum, unquote. The Israeli envoy to the U.N. demanded Guterres resign over the comments, as Israel has reportedly refused a visa to U.N. humanitarian affairs chief Martin Griffiths to, quote, teach them a lesson. Here in the U.S., activists and voters continue to pressure lawmakers to call for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. On Tuesday, a group of Christian, Jewish and Muslim faith leaders and activists held a pray-in at House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries' D.C. office. This is Rabbi Alyssa Wise. Overstate the crisis. Like, it is truly catastrophic on every level. Over 2,000 children have been killed, and it's being done in the name of the Jewish people. And the message of Judaism is one of life. The most sacred obligation in Jewish tradition is pikuach nefesh, which is saving a life. It trumps every other law. Also on Tuesday, protesters in the Bronx rallied to demand an end to unchecked U.S. military support for Israel. The protests started in front of the office of Congressmember Richie Torres, a staunch ally with Israel, whom activists accuse of complicity in genocide against Palestinians, they said. In Cleveland, Ohio, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, or CARE, is calling for a car ramming of a Palestinian-American man to be investigated as a hate crime. The 20-year-old victim has been hospitalized. The driver reportedly shouted, kill all Palestinians and long live Israel, before hitting him with his car. The University of Vermont canceled an in-person event this week featuring prominent Palestinian poet and journalist Mohammed El-Kurd, citing safety concerns. The move comes as Palestinian Americans and allies on college campuses across the U.S. are sounding the alarm over increasing suppression of their voices. In news from Washington, D.C., House Republicans nominated ultra-conservative Louisiana Congressmember and Trump ally Mike Johnson as their fourth pick for House Speaker. The news came late Tuesday after another chaotic day that saw the majority whip Tom Emmer nominated for the job, only to drop his bid just hours later. Emmer, a more moderate Republican, failed to gain the support of the far-right flank of his party, as well as Trump, who blasted him on social media and on a call with GOP lawmakers. Trump reported declared, I killed him after Emmer's withdrawal. The Minnesota lawmaker voted in favor of same-sex marriage rights and for the certification of Biden's 2020 win. The House has been without a speaker for over three weeks, following Kevin McCarthy's ouster. In Georgia, Jenna Ellis, Donald Trump's former lawyer and co-defendant in Fulton County's racketeering case, pleaded guilty to conspiring to overturn Trump's 2020 election loss. Ellis became the third former Trump lawyer to plead guilty and agree to cooperate with prosecutors following Kenneth Chesbrough and Sidney Powell last week. Jenna Ellis tearfully addressed in Atlanta court Tuesday. In the frenetic pace of attempting to raise challenges to the election in several states, including Georgia, I failed to do my due diligence. I believe in and I value election integrity. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump. Jenna Ellis was sentenced to five years of probation, a fine of $5,000 and 100 hours of community service. She'll also write a letter of apology to the state of Georgia. Here in New York, Michael Cohen testified in Trump's civil fraud trial that 
his former boss instructed him to inflate the value of his assets, quote, based upon a number that Trump arbitrarily elected. Michael Cohen, Trump's one-time fixer and lawyer, said he would reverse-engineer financial data to reach, quote, whatever number Trump told us. Cohen took the stand as Trump watched on, just feet away. Meanwhile, ABC News is reporting former White House chief of staff Mark Meadows testified at least three times to a federal grand jury after he was given immunity in special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Meadows reportedly testified Trump was being dishonest with Americans and that Meadows did not believe the election fraud claims were true. Forty-one states in the District of Columbia have sued Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, accusing the social media giant of knowingly promoting addictive features that harm the mental health of young people. The lawsuit says Meta has contributed to a mental health crisis in the United States and has violated a range of state consumer protection statutes, including a child privacy law that prohibits companies from collecting personal data of children under the age of 13 without parental consent. This is plaintiff New Jersey Attorney General Matt Platkin. We know that kids were and are being induced by Meta's Instagram and Facebook platforms to spend hours upon hours scrolling and being subjected to images and words that exacerbate a number of health and social issues, including body image, eating disorders, anxiety, loneliness, depression, and envy. Meta knew what they were doing. Hurricane Otis made landfall on Mexico's southern Pacific coast early this morning as a historic Category 5 storm, unleashing dangerously high winds and torrential rains. Officials have warned of potential catastrophic and life-threatening conditions, including landslides and floods in the town of Acapulco and surrounding areas. In related news, thousands of people were displaced in southeastern Yemen as Cyclone Tej triggered rare downpours. Severe cyclones are nearly unprecedented in the region, but warming ocean temperatures due to the climate crisis have made them more likely. The Guardian reports Tej is only the second such storm to make landfall in Yemen in recorded history. And women and non-binary people across Iceland held a 24-hour strike Tuesday to highlight the gender pay gap and gender-based violence. It was the seventh countrywide strike since the movement started in 1975, though Iceland has topped the World Economic Forum's gender gap report for 14 straight years. Researchers say 40 percent of women will still experience gender-based discrimination and sexual violence. Yesterday's work stoppage, led by trade unions, affected all industries, from schools to the highest echelons of government, with Prime Minister Katrin Jokobdottir also participating in the strike. This is Agriculture Minister Svandis Svavarsdottir. It's about gender equality. We have been uh, fighting for it for decades, and this day is very special for us, for women in Iceland, because we uh, all uh, skipped work uh, 48 years ago, and we are doing it again today, uh, because the gap is still there, and we are fighting against it. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, we go to Ramallah in the Israeli-occupied West Bank. Stay with us.
جبهاوين ويا محلى طاريهم يوم الشدايد اول ما تلاقيهم Oh, revolution, don't forget my comrades. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now!, co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. The death toll in Gaza has topped 6,500 as Israel continues to bombard this besieged territory for a 19th day. According to Palestinian health authorities, the dead include 2,700 children. Israel, with the backing of the United States, has rejected calls for a ceasefire. On Tuesday, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres addressed the U.N. Security Council and called for a ceasefire. It is important to also recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. They have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence, their economy stifled, their people displaced, and their homes demolished. Their hopes for a political solution to their plight have been vanishing. But the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas, and those appalling attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. Israel condemned Guterres's comments and has vowed to stop issuing visas to U.N. representatives. Israel's ambassador to the U.N. is also calling for Guterres's resignation. This all comes as the humanitarian situation in Gaza grows worse by the hour, as dwindling fuel supplies could soon force the closure of all hospitals in the territory. Israel is also continuing to carry out attacks in the occupied West Bank. An Israeli drone strike on the Janin refugee camp has killed at least three Palestinians. Israeli security forces and settlers have killed at least 100 Palestinians in the occupied West Bank since October 7th. And even before that, this was the deadliest year for Palestinians, at least one killed a day in the West Bank. Meanwhile, the number of Palestinians jailed by Israel has doubled over the past two weeks, from about 5,000 to 10,000. In other developments, the prime minister of Qatar says he hopes there'll be a breakthrough soon on the Israeli hostages being held by Gaza. Hamas and other groups are believed to be holding about 220 people seized on October 7th in the Hamas attack that left around 1,400 people dead in Israel. We begin today's show in Ramallah, in the occupied West Bank, where we're joined by Boudour Hassan, Amnesty International researcher on Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. Amnesty International published a report last week headlined, Damning Evidence of War Crimes Has Israeli Attacks Wipe Out Entire Families in Gaza. Boudour, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you lay out your findings? Hey, hello, Amy, to you, to Juan, and to all listeners and viewers. Um, 
With the help of our field worker who is in based in Gaza and testimonies that we gathered from witnesses, victims and relatives, in addition to open source evidence and photographs examined by our evidence lab team, we found out that Israeli forces carried out indiscriminate attacks, killing and injuring civilians, and in some cases that we documented, and that barely scratched the, scratch the surface of the horror that is unfolding in Gaza, entire families were wiped out during this bombing campaign, which is only escalating. In addition to indiscriminate attacks by Israeli forces, we also documented the ongoing use of collective punishment, which is a war crime, that even where Israel alleged that there was a military target, a legitimate military target, the attacks failed to abide by the principle of proportionality. And just Amy, to go further, because we keep hearing n numbers and sometimes we may be desensitized and even inured to the extent of horror that we are witnessing that behind each of these numbers there are stories. So as part of our work, Amnesty International researchers have been listening to testimonies of people in Gaza, of victims, talking directly to people over the phone. And when we talk to people, for example, we talk to Tahir Azaizi, who lost 26 members of his family. All of his family were killed in an Israeli airstrike in Deir al-Balah. Tahir Azaiz's two children, aged eight and six, were among those killed. His mother, his father, his brothers, his nieces, everyone of his family. And when we talked to him, he simply said, you know, in my heart, there is no room for all of this. And he started reciting the names, ages of his relatives lost. And I was reminded by Scholastic Mukasunga, the Rwandan writer, when she was remembering her loved ones who were killed in the Rwandan genocide and said that they are all killed, no one has remained. And this is exactly what happened to Tahir. Another father we talked to, when we talked to him over the phone, he was removing rubble with his, with his own hands because bulldozers couldn't make it to the neighborhood and there are no bulldozers can't even make it because there is no fuel for it to power bulldozers and to remove the rubble. So he was left with trying to remove the rubble and to uh, excavate the shreds of his daughter. And then while we were with him on the phone, someone told him, we found the toe of your young, of your little, little daughter. And he started kissing her toe. This is the only thing that was left to him by, from her. We talked to people who don't even have photographs to remember their loved ones with. They only have rubble because their phones, their laptops were Ill or destroyed in airstrikes. We also talked to relatives of the family of Addos in a Zaytun neighborhood in Gaza City. Fifteen members of this family were killed in an Israeli strike on the first day of the bombings on the 7th of October, including a 12-year-old named Dawni Dos. We did not realize at the time that Dawni was a talented gamer and YouTuber. Only later did it emerge from his friends that one of his dreams was to have more than 100,000 subscribers on YouTube, which he'll never see. And, and these are just some of the faces. Right now, as we speak, people in Gaza have not been able to mourn or to grieve properly. There are no funerals for the dead. It's very hard. There are 
are more than 1,000 bodies buried under the rubble and people cannot get. Even when people manage to bury their loved ones, they just have bury remnants. And even when they share with us testimonies with the difficulty of getting to people, what, we share, what they share with us almost are fragments of testimonies, not really testimonies, because of the devastation that they're living through and because simply they say, we need time to at least think about mourning our loved ones, about reflecting on all that we've been going through. And with this incessant bombings and, and war, they don't even have time for that. Uh, Padu, I wanted to ask you, what did your report find about uh, Israeli military warning civilians before dropping these bombs or missile attacks? Uh, and, uh, and also, Israel has claim that the uh, that the people of Gaza should move out of northern Gaza into the south. But what are you finding about attacks in the south? Budur. We're talking to Boudour Hassan, who is Amnesty International researcher on Israel and the occupied Palestinian uh, territories. Um, we're having a bit of a sound issue. Amnesty International has published a new report, headlined Damning Evidence of War Crimes as Israel uh, Israeli Attacks Wipe Out Entire Families in Gaza. Go ahead with what you were saying, Boudour. Why don't we turn to a clip as we fix the sound with Boudour Hassan? More than half of Gaza's population has been displaced by the Israeli assault. This is an 18-year-old Palestinian named Dima Alamdani. She'd fled to southern Gaza after Israel ordered Palestinians to leave their homes in the north. Much of her family died in an Israeli airstrike in Khan Yunus, where the family had sought temporary shelter. I went to look for my mother, my father, and my siblings at the morgue. At first, they told me, come, see your mother. They didn't show me her face, but I recognized her from what she has on her feet. God bless her soul. I felt heartbroken. It was like a nightmare. They opened my father's coffin and had no signs of injuries, but he died. God bless his soul. I had a 16-year-old sister among the dead, and they wrote my name on her coffin since they thought it was me. Her body didn't have any signs of injury but maybe she died from internal injuries. They also showed me my little sister. She's in first grade, and they asked me, who is she? At first, I didn't recognize her due to all the cuts and burns on her face. Then they wrote her name on her coffin. I would have never thought that my family would end up like this. I felt heartbroken. It's a nightmare. I can't believe it until now that they're all dead. No one left. But I think we have uh, we have the connection straightened out uh, with uh, Badur Hassan. I was asking you, Badur, about the uh, is Israeli warnings to civilians uh, uh, before attacks. Uh, what you've learned about that, and also about the Israeli claim that the Palestinians of northern Gaza should move to the south for safety. 
Juan, in the majority of cases that we did document, there were no warnings before the airstrikes, so the families did not receive at all any warnings. Even in cases where there was advance warning, that advance warning was not effective because it was only informed to one of the family members, not to the entire family or the residents of the buildings, and it failed to meet the standards that required to make an, a warning uh, effective with no clear time frame. With regards to the warnings, the initial warning by the Israeli army issued on the 13th of October for all of the residents of uh, north, north of Wadi Gaza to evacuate to uh, south of Wadi Gaza. This amounts to a forced displacement simply because this is unfeasible for this community to, be, uh, to leave. They cannot leave. Obviously, there are thousands of people with disabilities, wounded people. This number of people simply do not have the means and cannot leave. And, even, and, and then that was later followed by leaflets dropped by the Israeli army warning people to leave and then saying that anyone who chooses to stay north of Wadi Gaza will be considered accomplice in, uh, with armed terrorist organizations as per the words of the army, which is again amounts to collective punishment, fails to meet the principle of distinction because an entire area, hundreds of thousands, nearly a million people are treated just like an open fire zone, which also signals that the Israeli army intends to not distinguish between civilians and military target because an entire area is transformed into one. And even if we suppose that many of these people were to leave, the situation in southern Gaza, and especially in Rafah and Khan Yunis, is particularly dire, the UNRWA-run schools are barely, they're not capable of dealing with the amount of people that, the influx of people into South Gaza, in addition to the incessant bombardment also targeting the areas in Southern Gaza, especially over the last five days. So these coercive conditions in which the Israeli army is trying to force people out, which again may amount to forced displacement, knowing that people in Gaza absolutely have nowhere safe from bombardment and airstrikes. I wanted to ask you about the West Bank. That's where you are right now, um, Budur, you're in um, Ramallah. Um, in the occupied West Bank, health officials say at least 100 Palestinians have been killed by Israeli forces and armed settlers amidst mounting military raids and arrests. The Israeli human rights group Salem has documented some of the attacks. In one video shared online, an Israeli settler, accompanied by an Israeli soldier, shoots a man at point-blank range. Major protests also across the West Bank have taken aim at the ruling Palestinian Authority, which has launched a violent crackdown on demonstrations. Last week, a 12-year-old Palestinian girl named Hassan Nasrallah was shot and killed by PA security forces during protests in Jenin following the deadly bombing of, um, of Gaza's Al-Ahli hospital. Still not clear what that explosion—who was responsible for that explosion. But, um, Boudour, if you can talk about what's happening uh, also with Gazans who had um, work permits in the occupied West Bank, what has happened to them, and what's happening in the prisons where thousands of Palestinians are held. Since the 7th of October, after the Hamas attack, thousands of workers from Gaza 
who had valid work permits to work in Israel and the occupied West Bank had their work permits unilaterally revoked so they only could only learn about that through an application and then Israeli forces started rounding them up and detaining them in military bases in cage-like conditions one a prisoner who was later released because he was actually a resident of the West Bank spoke about torture and other ill-treatment to which these workers are subjected families of workers who contacted Israeli human rights organizations including Hamouked, Gisha and Physicians for Human Rights told said that they have no clue where their family members are so Israel now is treating is arbitrarily detaining thousands of Palestinian workers almost treating them like hostages denying them due process denying them meetings with lawyers there is not even a hint of due process in addition to torture all that in the context of increasing numbers of detentions and before that before all of this started the number of Palestinians administratively detained without charges or trial has hit a 20-year high and the number has doubled just since the 7th of October and Palestinian families obviously have not been able to visit their loved ones in prison in addition to that the Israeli parliament the Knesset adopted a, an amendment uh, that would authorize the Israeli prison authorities to not limit to not limit the number of people who can be detained in one cell which has made the conditions of imprisonment absolutely dire and amounting to torture and other ill-treatment all of that Amy as you said in the context of increasing number of unlawful killings of Palestinians including Palestinian children mostly during protests and many of these cases where state sponsored uh, state supported settlers have also been rampaging across the West Bank leading to unprecedented levels of forcible transfer in areas around Ramallah and unfortunately this level of this level of pressure of coercion of oppression that Palestinians have been facing in the West Bank which is part and parcels of Israel's apartheid regime has received such a scant attention because all eyes now are on Gaza which has given the opportunity to Israeli settlers and to Israeli policymakers to actually escalate their uh, campaign of forcible transfer and of settlement expansion. Boudour Hassan, we want to thank you so much for being with us, Amnesty International researcher on Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories. Again, we will link to Amnesty's report, headline damning evidence of war crimes as Israeli attacks wipe out entire families in Gaza. When we come back, we speak with the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Viet Thanh Nguyen about his new memoir, A Man of Two Faces, a memoir, a history, a memorial. A major talk in New York was canceled after he signed, along with hundreds and hundreds of writers, a letter calling for a ceasefire. Stay with us. Ahí por el camino del sitio mío, un carretero alegre paso. En su tonada que es muy guajira y muy sentida alegre canto Hay por el camino del sitio mío un carretero alegre paso 
sonada que es muy sentida y muy guajira, alegre canto. Me voy al transbordador, a descargar la carreta. Me voy al transbordador, a descargar la carreta. Para llegar a la meta de mi penosa labor. Guillermo Fertables. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Here in New York, the prestigious Community and Cultural Center, 92NY, formerly known as the 92nd Street Y, said this week it's postponing its literary reading series as it faces backlash for canceling an event with the Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist Viet Thanh Nguyen who joined some 750 writers who signed an open letter in the London Review of Books calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. It reads in part, quote, We can only express our grief and heartbreak for the victims of these most recent tragedies and for their families, both Palestinians and Israelis. But the unprecedented and indiscriminate violence that's still escalating against the 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza with the financial and political support of Western powers can and must be brought to an end, they said. Over the past two weeks, scores of Palestinian Americans uh, and their allies say their scheduled appearances and interviews have been canceled, venues canceled events featuring Palestinians or speakers who've been critical of Israel's human rights record. After Friday's 9-2-NY event was canceled, Nguyen wrote online, quote, I have no regrets about anything I've said or done in regards to Palestine, Israel, or the occupation and war. And his event was held instead at the McNally Jackson Bookstore. He was able to talk about his new memoir. He's joining us now from Minneapolis on another leg of his book tour. Viet Thanh Nguyen is the author of many books, has just published A Man of Two Faces, A Memoir, A History, A Memorial. We last spoke to him about his novel The Committed, a sequel to his Pulitzer Prize-winning book The Sympathizer. His other books include— the Refugees and the Displaced, Refugee Writers on Refugee Lives, which he edited. He's a professor at USC, the University of Southern California. We're so glad to have you back on the show, Professor, um, and know that you don't really want to talk about the canceled 9-2-NY event. So let's talk about your memoir. If you can start out by laying out the themes relevant to what's unfolding in Israel-Palestine, themes of war and memory, identity, the refugee and diaspora experience, the traumatic toll of history on individuals who live through it. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me back. I certainly do think that this memoir that I wrote, which is about my life and the lives of my parents who came to the United States as refugees and who were, you know, who went through 40 years of war and colonization when they were living in Vietnam. Uh, those stories that I tell in this book and larger, larger stories about Vietnamese refugees in general and about the, the war in Vietnam do have a lot of relevance to what's happening today. One of the things that I stress in the, the, the memoir is that civilian stories are war stories, too. I, I look at the lives of my parents who were not soldiers and how they were deeply affected by war constantly. Um, they were displaced as refugees twice. Uh, 
they had to leave behind an adopted daughter when they fled Vietnam for the for the first time. Uh, my mother had to go to the psychiatric facility in the United States three times in her life, the last time leaving her permanently uh, disabled. And I, I spent a lot of time thinking about how uh, the ramifications of war are oftentimes very visible for soldiers, because when we think about wars, we generally think of wars, soldiers, battles, tanks, and so on. But the fact of the matter is that wars usually kill more civilians than soldiers, and civilians bear enormous burdens, uh, both of, of violence, but also of ongoing trauma in the years afterwards. And that trauma is also then passed on to their families, to their children. And I grew up witnessing how the Vietnamese refugee community in the United States was a traumatized community that had a very hard time uh, dealing with its past. Uh, it was oriented towards looking to the future, becoming American, uh, and then having the, un the unspoken consequences of the war rippling through the family and the, uh, the community. And probably the last thing to say here is that when Vietnamese Americans become Americans, it's certainly part of the, the narrative of the so-called American dream, of which I'm very critical in the book. But part of the complication for, for me is that you know, what does it mean to come as a refugee to the United States and then become a part of a country that uh, is a military industrial complex and is a settler colonial society? And that's a contradiction that uh, I try to work through in the book. And you also deal with the issue of uh, language, how learning and becoming conversant in English drew you away from your family. How does language, in this case English, also represent or at least stand in for other markers of difference, so race, class, culture? I, I came to the United States when I was four, so I was fluent in Vietnamese at the age of four, and I still am fluent at, in Vietnamese at the age of four. But, uh, you know, I immediately became immersed in English, and I really don't even remember learning English. It seemed like I was fully born into English. It became my language. It became my way of becoming an American and assimilating into American society, and especially through the use of English to read books. You know, I, I educated myself at the San Jose Public Library by immersing myself in into Anglo-American literature, the entire literary tradition. And that I think I understood that I should do that because that was my entryway into American society. Uh, but of course, the, for, the more fluent I became in English, the more distanced I became from my parents. I was reading The Sound of the Sound and the Fury and Ulysses, and my mother was reading the Vietnamese language church newsletter. Um, and so I, I think at some level, I, I subconsciously and then consciously decided that I had that I had to make a choice between English uh, and Vietnamese. I chose English. It led me to where I am today, talking to you. But the, the personal, cultural, psychic ramifications of doing that in terms of not being able to be intimate with my parents in Vietnamese has been painful and probably not unique to me, but to a lot of refugee and, and, and immigrant children. And, you know, English is the language of the masters. It's the language of the colonizers. Ironically, through writing in English, I've been able to access much of the world because my books are translated into many languages. Uh, and I think partly because I've been published in the United States through English, a language that people all over the world need to know they need to grapple with. If I was publishing in Vietnamese, uh, I would be read by and much less people. Uh, also, it was striking how throughout uh, throughout the book you've blacked out or redacted a particular name, uh, Donald Trump. Why? Um, you know, I I, uh, I was thinking in particular about how redaction is so crucial to American society, to a country like ours. Um, we literally redact 
documents, of course, uh, for example, from Guantanamo Bay or other kinds of declassified documents or classified documents that are revealed. And so the act of redaction is an act of visual censorship. Uh, we, we know something important is being said, but we're not allowed to see what that is. And to me, that's a metaphor for redaction as a whole in the American consciousness. Um, you know, for the, at least the past 20 years, we've been engaged in the, the forever war and we've been engaged in other wars continuously throughout American history. And that is a matter that I think has been redacted in the general American consciousness. Uh, we, we as Americans generally think of ourselves as the greatest country on earth. We have a hard time imagining that we do terrible things. And so those terrible things that in fact, in fact we actually do with our wars is redacted in our own minds and in our, uh, in our education and in our popular culture. So that's what, it, that's what it really refers to. And of course, for me, I took a little bit of pleasure in redacting one person's name in particular, um, because in fact, I do think that that is uh, the most I could do to uh, this particular uh, person, um, that he benefits from having our names on his lips, on my our lips uh, all the time. And so if we could just stop talking about him and saying his name, that would be one way of erasing him from um, our history and our memory and our politics. Yeah, if you could talk about your choice of title, A Man of Two Faces, and the subtitle, A Memoir, A History, A Memorial. Well, I, I grew up in the United States feeling like I had two faces. Um, on the one hand, I felt living in my very Vietnamese household with my very Vietnamese parents that I was an American spying on them. And I felt completely American uh, growing up. But then when I stepped outside of that house, household and, and outside of the Vietnamese refugee community into the rest of the United States, I felt like a Vietnamese spying on these Americans. And so I took that feeling of duality and, and I infused that into my fiction, into characters like the sympathizer, the title, char the, the character of that novel. Um, and, you know, for a long time, I worked out my own emotional complications, having grown up as a refugee in the United States, feeling uh, myself to be an eyewitness to the trauma that my parents underwent. I, I survived that experience by becoming emotionally numb, by not feeling things, uh, by shutting down and, and not dealing with uh, what I'd seen and what I'd felt. And so eventually, though, it came time to, to write a memoir after my mother passed away in, in 2018. And I certainly wanted to write about my mother and her extraordinary life um, as a refugee, as a survivor, as a successful businesswoman, as a hero who, in the end, was destroyed by herself, um, by whatever was happening in her mind. Um, and so there's, there's a memorial uh, uh, for her in this, this book as well. And then finally, there's a history, because I, I think it's hard to, for me to separate the, the memoirs of myself and my family and the memorial I'm writing about my, my mother from the history of Vietnam and the United States that uh, led to war and that led to us becoming refugees. And you know, one of the central questions I deal with in the book with my mother is, is how do I know what was unique to her and, and what felled her inside her own body and mind from what history? did to her, how history hammered her through war and colonization and famine and other kinds of terrible experiences. And that mystery is, I think, um, true for so many refugees and immigrants. Some survive the experience of becoming refugees or immigrants um, physically, some survive psychically, and others do not. And how do we know uh, what is history and what is personal trauma? 
um, uh, what is history and what is our own memories. And I try to pursue that question for my family, but also for for refugees and immigrants in general, because I think as, as extraordinary as my mother was, and she was also utterly ordinary, too, because I've talked to so many fa- uh, other people, and they've told me pa- stories about their refugee parents, and they've all experienced extraordinary, horrifying, terrifying things, because that was what marked that generation of Vietnamese people. So I do think that my mother, as extraordinary as she is to me, is also representative of what so many other uh, Vietnamese of her generation went through. Viet Thanh Nguyen, as tension grows between the United States and China, we also see a rise in anti-Asian violence. And I was wondering if you can talk about instances in your life where your family confronted violence, and in particular, gun violence. Well, absolutely. Um, you know, I, we, my, my parents opened a, a grocery store in San Jose in the late 1970s called the Saigon Mai. Um, and in that time, downtown San Jose is not like it is now highly gentrified. It was a, it was a place where only Vietnamese refugees went to open stores um, back then. And uh, my parents were shot in their store on, on Christmas Eve when, when I was nine years old. Um, that was one of those incidents that I, you know, at nine years of age, I didn't know what to do with. And my reaction to that was not to react emotionally not to process those feelings. And partly that they was were also both do- shot. They were both shot. And, you know, part, partly what happened is they, they were they were lucky. They, they were only flesh wounds. And so they were back to work within a day or two uh, because they had to be. If they weren't working in that store, they weren't going to make money. If they weren't going to make money, they weren't going to be able to save themselves and my brother and me and, and all the relatives in Vietnam that they were sending money home to. And so that was a part of the refugee and immigrant life. You know, if you were shot, if you were held up, uh, you just had to keep on moving forward uh, because there was nobody that was going to take your place in that store. Um, And then, you know, some years later, when I was 16, a a gunman broke into our house and and pointed a gun in all of our faces and told us to get on the floor. And my mother and father did. And uh, I'm sorry, my father and I did. My mother just ran past the gunman screaming into the street. And when he turned around to go after her, my, my father slammed the door shut and locked it leaving the gunman outside with my mother. And I could see her running down the street uh, outside the, the living room window past all these scar- cars, and she was screaming. And she saved our lives that way. Um, and that was typical of my mother, um, being able to make these life-and-death decisions. So those were the most graphic kinds of violence that we were subjected to. But you know, growing up, I think I was also bombarded just by the, the ever-present racism of American popular culture, because in the 70s and 80s, there were ching-chong jokes on the radio airwaves by shock DJs. And uh, anybody who went to the movies was watching um, racist Asian caricatures and things like Breakfast at Tiffany's and Sixteen Candles. And of course, I was watching all the American Vietnam War movies in which the Vietnamese had nothing to say, um, even though this was our country and our war, our only place in the American imagination was to be killed, to be raped, or to be rescued. Um, that had a tremendous impact on me psychologically, so much so that when I went to high school, my, my Asian friends and I, we, we didn't have a language for ourselves, so we would gather in a corner of the campus and we would call ourselves the Asian Invasion. And so the only language we had for ourselves was a racist language, and of course the, the, the racism in that was that Asians have never 
invaded the United States. If anything, the United States has invaded Asia. And so this is one of the most pernicious ways that I think anti-Asian violence works in the United States is to deny that it even exists and to get Asian Americans to subject themselves to this kind of uh, brainwashing and to forget a very crucial fact that is still relevant today, which is that the greatest acts of anti-Asian violence are not carried out within the United States. The greatest acts of anti-Asian violence are carried out in America's wars in Asia. That's been true for a, a century. And if you consider Palestine to be a part of Asia, very broadly speaking, there I see total continuity between what the United States has done in the Philippines, in uh, Korea, in Japan, in Laos, in Cambodia, in Vietnam, and now with Palestine. And yet we only have about a minute left, but I wanted to ask you about another of your books, The Sympathizer. It's being made into a miniseries. How, do you, how did that come about, and what would you like the drama series version to convey that's perhaps distinct from the novel? How did that come about? Well, that came about because I mean, you know, producers were reaching out to me, and it was a long and complicated process, but the long and short of it is that we were very lucky to land the uh, director, Park Chan-wook, uh, who, who directed Old Boy and The Handmaiden, a director with a beautiful visual sense, but also a grasp of politics and history and colonization. I think he's perfect for this, and he, uh, with him, we brought on uh, the production studio A24, with, which so many people love, and then that led to Robert Downey Jr. being cast by Park Chan Wook as the one white male actor to play all the white male got white male roles in the in the TV series, so there's a satirical element going on there. And then through all of those, we landed HBO, and the show will hopefully air in uh, April of the coming year. And what I hope is that with a TV series like this, I mean, one of the realities of of of, uh, of the world is that. Even a good book would be lucky to sell 10 or 50,000 copies, but a TV series can reach millions. And so for decades and decades now, um, the whole world has been subject, subjected to America's Hollywood's imagination of the war in Vietnam, which is very, a very problematic depiction that puts Americans at the center. And for just one TV series of seven episodes, we will have all of these very talented Vietnamese actors from all over the world whose faces will be on the screen up there. Uh, you know, Hwas one day plays a sympathizer up there with Sandra Oh and Robert Downey Jr. And hopefully through our TV series, we can at least budge for a little bit the, the, the representation of the war in Vietnam, and but also the representations of Vietnamese people globally as well. Viet, um, you wrote in 2017, people might like to think the war is done when a ceasefire is signed. Um, but for most people who live through a war, it goes on for decades. As we wrap up this discussion, I mean, it's fascinating that your call that led to your cancellation at a major event in New York for a ceasefire. You may have heard at the top of the show the U.N. Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, calling for that very thing. Your final thoughts? Well, of course, I absolutely agree. And, and what happens during times of war, we've seen it before and we're seeing it very vividly right now, is that wars lead to an us versus them mentality. Uh, we are good. They are evil. And it's us or them, as George Bush said about uh, in the aftermath of 9-11. And that type of thinking is obviously very conducive to mobilizing people to fight wars. Um, but it's also a completely wrong kind of thinking, because when we say we are good and they are evil, we're saying we are human and they are inhuman. And I don't believe that to be true. I, I believe that we are all human and inhuman 
each of us individually and certainly our nations as well. Uh, and when we deny our own inhumanity, what we do is we project that inhumanity onto our opponents, onto our enemies, which makes it easier to kill them uh, and to kill them in the name of humanitarian. If we're human, we're, we conduct human and humane warfare, and uh, our enemies are less than human. Uh, we've seen it with every single war before. We're seeing it now. We need a ceasefire in obviously order to save lives, but also to take a step back from this very dangerous thinking of us versus them. Viet Thanh Nguyen, we want to thank you so much for being with us, Pulitzer Prize-winning author. His new memoir is out. It's called A Man of Two Faces, a memoir a history, a memorial. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We end today's show with a new report on how U.S. policy toward Latin America has fueled historic numbers of asylum seekers. This past weekend, Mexican President AMLO, Andres Manuel López Obrador, hosted a summit on how to address the steep rise in migration from Latin America to the United States. Participants included Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel, Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro, Honduran President Shamara Castro, Haitian Prime Minister Ariel Henry, and Colombian President Gustavo Petro. After the meeting, AMLO said he would ask President Biden to open a dialogue with Cuba and called for an end to the U.S. economic embargo of Cuba. Juan, you have this new report out. The current migrant crisis, how U.S. policy toward Latin America has fueled historic numbers of asylum seekers. The report, published by the Great Cities Institute, where you are in Chicago, where you're also a fellow. Can you lay out what you found? Yeah, Amy, I think the, the, the key aspect of the report is that we've had a lot of attention in the past couple of years to the historic surge in uh, migration across the border. Uh, but there have been few media accounts that have examined the direct responsibility of our federal government in fueling uh, this current crisis uh, through its foreign policy. And, uh, and also those narratives in the media have largely uh, failed to acknowledge the long history of U.S. intervention and wealth extraction in the region and the decades of neglect of Latin America by all administrations, Democratic and Republican, of the last 60 years. And so w one of the most interesting things is that uh, the report outlines the evidence that it's U.S. economic warfare against three specific countries, Venezuela, Cuba and Nicaragua, that is a significant cause of the latest migration surge. Uh, and uh, for instance, uh, the, uh, the, the migrant flow to the United States has changed dramatically. A few years ago, during the Obama administration and the Trump administrations, we were talking largely about uh, of, of migrants from uh, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. That has changed uh, almost completely. Uh, Venezuelans, for instance, uh, back in in 2020, there were only 4,500 Venezuelans that were apprehended uh, at the southern border. That's uh, less than three years ago. Now we're up to 265,000 in the first 11 months of the of this past fiscal year, FY 2023. The same thing for Nicaraguans. Uh, a few couple of years ago, it was 3,100 that were encountered at the border. Uh, uh, this uh, last 11 months of this past fiscal year, 131,000. And of course, Cubans. Uh, 14,000 Cubans were found, uh, were apprehended at the border in 2020, 184,000 in 2023. And 
we're seeing this enormous increase from these three countries. What do all these three countries have in common? They are all being subjected to United States sanctions, economic warfare that is uh, reduced and, and really crippled the economies of these countries. Uh, Venezuela, for instance, between 2017 and 2020, lost about between 17 and 31 billion dollars in all revenues uh, because as a result of U.S. sanctions. Now, we're just hearing this past weekend after after our report came out uh, that that uh, the United States is beginning to temporarily uh, limit the sanctions. It, it's uh, it's allowing Venezuela for the first time now in several years to sell oil uh, back into the United States. Uh, but the sanctions have inflicted enormous harm on the Venezuelans. And the other interesting thing to note is all, all the media attention has been focused on the Venezuelan migrants. Almost as many Cubans have entered the United States in the last two years as the number of Venezuelans who have entered the United States. And in fact, the flow of people from Cuba uh, in the past two years has been greater than any time in history. More Cubans have come to the United States in the past two years than did after the Cuban Revolution in 1959, than did uh, uh, during the Mario Boatlift of 1980, than did during the Bacero Crisis of 1994. This has been the largest uh, flight of Cubans into the United States in history. Uh, The difference is that most of the Cubans are settling in Florida, where there is already a large Cuban-American community that is helping them to integrate into the uh, into U.S. society. So it's not gotten as much national attention. But there is an enormous problem uh, in the Cuba migration as well that the United States is confronting. Uh, so I think that's one of the interesting things. All of this surge is a direct result of our government's economic warfare against particular countries. So I think one of the things that the report urges is that the Cuba embargo has to end, the Venezuela sanctions have to end, and the Nicaragua sanctions uh, have to end if the flow of migrants from these countries is going to be reduced. Uh, The other thing that the report shows is the historic neglect of the United States uh, to Latin America and the Caribbean. This past year, the United States gave total foreign aid to all of Latin America and the Caribbean of $3 billion. Three billion. Compare that to the 113 billion that went to Ukraine or uh, as much money went to uh, in foreign aid to Latin America, which has 650 million people, as went to Israel. Uh, Israel had about 3.8 billion in aid. Of course, it's about to get a lot more. So the inequities in the U.S. foreign aid are not helping to lift uh, Latin America, creating the sanctions are reducing the ability of people to survive in the in the region. And then we're surprised by all these people appearing at the border. Uh, And so I think that's the the main lesson that we have to learn. And also, of course, President Biden now is urging about 14 billion dollars in his new package that he's proposed to Congress for border security. Here's one interesting fact. Most people are not aware of the Migration Policy Institute reported this some time back. The United States spent $333 billion between 2003, when the Department of Homeland Security was created, and 2021 for agencies that carry out immigration enforcement. I'm going to repeat that. $333 billion for immigration enforcement and uh, for ICE and uh, Border Patrol and fences. And what do we have? 
the highest level of migrant crossings in history are occurring right now. All that money did nothing uh, to slow the uh, the migrant flow. So obviously it's it's sort of like a, a money for prisons. It's wasted money. Juan, we want to thank you so much for the report. We're going to link to it, the current migrant crisis, how U.S. policy toward Latin America has fueled historic numbers of asylum seekers at democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez for Democracy Now!,